Our scripture reading from today is from Hebrews 4. You can follow along as it will be projected above, or, or you can find it on page 10 of your bulletin, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The word of the Lord. Well, we're uh, thrilled today to have Bradford Green uh, preaching for us. Bradford is our TCU RUF campus minister. Um, RUF is the campus ministry of the PCA, and Bradford is an ordained minister sent out by our church and our presbytery um, to, to, to preach the gospel uh, week in and week out on TCU's campus. He's a good friend. Uh, many of you know him, but if you don't, please try to find him after the service. Um, he's the best storyteller I know, and so um, you should ask him about what it's like to work at Dollywood. So with that, here's Bradford. <clears throat> So first, a story about going to jail, second, a nautical term, and third, an application about prayer. Okay, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never goes out and returns to you empty. It always accomplishes your purposes. We pray that that would be true this afternoon. We pray that that would be true from these verses in Hebrews chapter 4, and we pray that uh, you would do a good work in us through them and through my words this afternoon. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, one of my best friends was on his way home from a hunting trip. He was kind of in that no man's land between Little Rock and Memphis, and he came upon an unusual traffic situation. So there were uh, a few cars in front of him that were stopped. So two lanes on his side of the interstate stopped, but really nothing in front of them that, that looked like a problem or looked like an accident. He couldn't see anything that was stopping these cars in front of him. And so after a while, he got a little impatient and he got some peer pressure from some other guys in the car with him. And he decided, he said, you know, I'm just gonna go around. And so he kind of went over onto the shoulder and got going, and pretty quickly, a, a police car was coming toward him from the other direction and pulled him over, and the policeman was just irate. And, and the policeman says, didn't you see all those cars that were stopped? And he writes my friend two tickets, one for reckless driving and one for disobeying a police officer. And so a few months later, my friend goes to this tiny Arkansas town. And he goes into the courthouse, <clears throat> and he essentially thinks that he's walking into some sort of low-level traffic court. But as soon as he gets into the courtroom, he knows immediately that he has made a terrible mistake. This is a trial, okay? There's a judge, the policeman is there in his, his dress uniform, and, and my friend realizes he's in big trouble. And he actually ends up taking the stand 
And from there, things only get worse. He tries to defend himself. He tries to speak to his own character by mentioning that, that he's actually on the Young Life staff. He's actually in ministry, that he's, he's a very careful driver normally. In fact, we would make fun of uh, how careful of a driver he was. But uh, he, he, he tells the court that he, that he has a great record, all of which, for whatever reason, infuriates the judge. And so when the gavel falls, my friend is going to jail. Now, uh, it's not for long, it's about 48 hours, but he gets the proverbial one phone call. And he calls his wife, who is at this point, uh, she's a teacher and she's actually pregnant with their, their first child. And he leaves her a voicemail and he says, honey, I'm going to jail and I'm not kidding. <laughs> and of course, on the phone, he's flooded with this realization. The, the key to escaping this whole situation, he tells her, he says into the phone, he says, I made a huge mistake. I should have hired who? A lawyer. And so in the slammer in the county jail, uh, he had plenty of time to think about how what he truly needed was a representative. He needed someone to defend him, somebody to fight for him, somebody to, to stand in the gap in his place. And so you see where I'm going with this, that our passage today reminds us of a very similar spiritual reality. It's this reality that, that we cannot approach God. We cannot come to the throne of grace on our own. We need a representative. We need somebody who's qualified to, to stand in the gap between us and God uh, so that we will not be consumed. Because God is too holy, he's too perfect, he's too just for us to approach him on our own merits. And so in our sin, we, we stand accused. We need a spiritual representative, a priest, really an ultimate priest, a great high priest to represent us before the throne of God. So uh, only three verses here this afternoon, but there's a lot packed in here. We'll divide it three ways. <clears throat> I borrowed these from Dr. Mike Kruger, RTS Charlotte. First, uh, Jesus is a high priest that effectively intercedes for us. Second, Jesus is a high priest that fully sympathizes with us. And third, Jesus is a high priest that really purifies us. So uh, Jesus is a high priest, effectively intercedes for us, fully sympathizes with us and really purifies us. So let's look at the first of these. Um, uh, a quick primer, the context we find ourselves in, uh, the author of Hebrews is making a very simple, a very uh, profound the argument, and it's, it's simply this, we can say it in three words, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And he is keyed in for this audience on the idea that Jesus is better than the, the Old Testament structures. He's better than sacrifices, the temple, and priests. And uh, to some of you, no doubt, this idea of Jesus as a substitute is very familiar. Uh, J.I. Packer said that the notion of, of penal substitution, Jesus dying as a substitute for our moral debt incurred through sin, he said, is uh, at the very heart of the Christian gospel. And so we worship Jesus the song says, because in my place condemned he stood, right? Uh, it's this substitutionary language. It's just in the, the warp and woof of Christianity. And moreover, 
um, I, I think you probably don't need much convincing that Jesus is better than the Old Testament sim, uh, system. So though uh, we in, in this room have not uh, tested uh, uh, that system, I don't think any of us would want to uh, have to go make a blood sacrifice with an animal for our sin on any given day. I do not want to do that. But uh, there's a larger point here that Jesus isn't merely better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's that he's better than any system. He is better than any system. He's better than anything that we can set up in our lives to try to atone for our guilt or to purify us or to make us acceptable before God. And in that sense, we have set up many systems, have we not? Many schemes trying to substitute some sort of uh, technique for Jesus, some method, some logic. Sometimes we do it with big systems like political parties or cultural institutions. Sometimes we do it with more, more personal systems of, of achievement or uh, of moral standards or, or some sort of social cachet. Sometimes we even substitute for Jesus elaborate spiritual systems, right? A, a certain type of prayer or, or devotional life or doctrinal structure. But uh, here's what makes all of those sy systems insufficient. The first thing is that they do not work, right? They cannot meet you in, in your guilt and, and, and bear it. But second, I think that they are all easier than dealing with Jesus, I think that the blood of bulls and goats, to take this system we're dealing with in Hebrews, is easier to deal with than the blood of the Son of God on our hands and on our hearts. Or if you want to take another system, any system that you like, if you say, you know, I will deal with my deep sense of guilt and inadequacy and fear by rising to the absolute top of my profession. I think that whatever your profession, that will be easier than dealing with Jesus. Because in him, we have to stare down our sin, and we have to see it destroy him on the cross, and then we have to repent. And I think that's harder than anything. And so our sin, in that sense, makes us no different than the first century readers here of, of Hebrews, that, that just like them, we need someone to stand in the gap between us and a, a holy God, what the Bible calls an intercessor, or what this passage calls a, a high priest. And so the priest, of course, in Israel, I mean, that's a little bit outside of our experience, <clears throat> but I think that we really understand this concept um, in, in a number of ways, partly because we use representatives all the time. So lawyers or real estate agents, I have a CPA who is my tax representative, right? I have a, a, a plumber that in some sense represents me before my pipes. These are all things that I, I cannot do on my own. The list goes on. The plumber may be the most important out of all of the who I just named, but think about that. If, if we need a representative, if we need a specialist in all of these different worldly contexts, some of them uh, fairly trivial, 
then why would we think that we could stand before God without one? It's absurd, really, to think about that. I, you know, I can't, I, I couldn't even figure out how to make my dishwasher work recently. I had a piece of glass down there. I had to call a guy. How could I stand before God alone? Perfect, holy God. We need an agent. We need a substitute. And ultimately, we need a savior to do what we could never do. And that is why this concept of Jesus as our great high priest is so important. It's why it's at the heart of the Christian life, as we said, because we live in God's world. And and scripture is very clear that we will meet him one day. And in fact, one of the most powerful verses to this effect is is actually the verse right before this. We did not read it, but Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that's what sends us into verse 14 here and the importance of a representative. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. A couple things happening here. First, uh, we see here that, that Jesus is a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Uh, this is a reference to Jesus interceding uh, for us in the presence of God, Christ our counselor. The Old Testament high priest, of course, did this in the temple. Uh, That was the sacred place. That was where the the presence of God was concentrated at that time. But Jesus, Hebrews says elsewhere in chapter 9, verse 24, entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In other words, Jesus goes into the presence of God. He goes into the most dangerous place in all of the world to represent you. And not only that, but Jesus does this. He intercedes for you eternally, which is another thing that only he can do, right? Because he never grows weary or tired. He doesn't forget about you and get distracted from Hebrews 7.25. It says, consequentially, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Old Testament priests got tired, right? They had to eat. They had to go to the bathroom. But Jesus intercedes for us with perfect steadfastness. And what makes this this high priest great? What makes him the greatest It's by virtue of his life and death and resurrection. And thus, uh, here in verse 14, we're encouraged to hold fast to our confession, to faithfully cling to Jesus. And that's always what faith is, right? It always has this quality of, of desperation. Faith never really says, well, you know, I guess I'll try this. Faith is something qualitatively different. Uh, no, uh, well, okay, David Pallison said this. He said, faith has two core activities, dire need and then utter joy. Dire need and utter joy. And that's sort of the, the, the polarizing sense of the, the, the presence of God, right? Because as Christians, we sing songs about the, the utter joy 
that, that we will feel in God's presence one day. I think of the Psalm before the throne, right? But, but without Jesus, the presence of God is, is death. It's, it's eternal horror. And that's this dire need of faith. And so we hold fast. That's a nautical term, by the way. Uh, it's this idea of hanging on to a, a ship's rope or rigging, hanging on, even in the midst of a great storm, literally holding on for dear life. That's what we do with Jesus in the presence of God. But truly, what's actually happening in that moment, we, we sense it as holding fast to Christ, right? And that is, of course, true. But it's also grace that is holding us. It's sort of like in the Odyssey. Remember when uh, Odysseus orders the sailors to, to tie him to the mast while the sirens sing their, their beautiful song of death. It's like we can hold fast because it's grace that holds us. It's grace that has tied us to the mast. And so Jesus is the great high priest that effectively intercedes for us. Second, Jesus is a high priest that fully sympathizes with us. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the uh, C.S. Lewis quote in your bulletin that, that the temptation of Jesus, the way he has fully experienced it has made him the complete realist. He knows more about our lives, he knows more about our temptations and our weaknesses than anyone else. And then Brene Brown, uh, the author and speaker and shame researcher, says that the two most powerful words in the English language are me too. So when someone else uh, relates to you, feels what you feel, it says me too. Not speaking of the, the hashtag or the movement um, in that, although I think the power of that phrase may be a part of that. What I'm getting at is that we all have this tendency to think that no one else is experiencing what we are. Nobody else is experiencing the, the shame or the uh, anxiety or the confusion that we feel. And while it's true that Jesus did not experience those things internally in exactly the same way in regards to uh, indwelling sin, this verse reminds us that Jesus knew what it was like to inhabit a dark and fallen world. He knew what it was like to be in danger, even to the point of death. And so it's a powerful thought that Jesus can look at us and he can say, me too. He can say, I know. Fully God, but fully human. And that's tempted by the things that we are tempted by, by money and power and comfort and avoiding conflict. And, and he can say, me too, to our shame and to living in a, a body that is breaking down over time. He was betrayed by friends. He was misunderstood for who he really was. He was written off cast out, made fun of, uh, cast out of the wealthy and, and popular and powerful crowd, right? Truly, whatever you are experiencing, whatever you have experienced, and Jesus gets it. He understands. He can look at you and he can say, me too. 
Dane Orland put it this way. He said, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we are descending ever deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it. This speaks to another struggle of ours uh, to think that Jesus loves us, that he may have even died for us, but that he doesn't really like us. Or maybe that he likes us when we are strong and, and smart and have it together. But that's actually not true at all. Jesus sympathizing with us is not just proof of his love, it's proof of his like, his affection for us. And so counterintuitively, as Dane Orland is saying here, it's, it's your weaknesses that actually draw you closer to Jesus. And the beauty of that is that when you bring your sins and your imperfections to Jesus, that, that he is a bottomless well of sympathy and compassion. And the beauty of that is that if you have this bottomless well of, of compassion in Jesus, then you don't have to constantly be looking for it from, from other people. It changes your relationships in that way. You're actually free to show compassion instead of always being on the hunt for it. Kurt Thompson said, he said, we are all born looking for someone looking for us. We're all born looking for someone looking for us. In Jesus, we have the one looking for us. And that makes us strong in his love. To, to put another angle on that, it's like the, the strength that a, a little child gets from their parents. Think of the difference of a, a child walking into a, a, an unfamiliar place alone versus uh, with his father, with her mother. It's totally different levels of confidence. And so strength, this sort of inner spiritual strength that we are all looking for uh, to face the most difficult situations in our lives and in this broken world, I think that strength is much more transferable than we realize. That someone looking at us and saying, me too, gives us new strength, new resolve. And if that is true on a horizontal level amongst ourselves, then how much more true is it of Jesus looking at us and saying, me too? What is there to fear then? We might ask with Paul, if Jesus is with us, then we can face anything. The implication of this text is, is that we can even face the, the presence, the very presence of God in all his holiness. In other words, we can stand before the throne in confidence because of Jesus. And that leads us to our last point here, verse 16. Uh, Jesus is a high priest that really purifies us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can Jesus be the great high priest that really purifies us? Because in him, the, the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice come together. The Old Testament sacrificial system of uh, you know, the bulls and goats and the lambs and assorted animals 
that taught a few different things. For one, it taught that sin has very real consequences, that uh, sin always results in death, that blood has to be shed in order for our sin to be atoned for, that that is justice. That's the justice of God. But Hebrews also reminds us later on, the blood of bulls and goats could never actually atone for sin. An imperfect priest offering an imperfect sacrifice could never quench God's wrath once and for all. I don't think that means that Israel was, was play acting. I think it means uh, that they were practicing because those sacrifices were pointing forward to another. The whole system, in fact, was pointing to the one to come. In other words, if you're connected to Jesus by faith, then all of the power that is in a perfect sacrifice offered by a perfect priest is yours. We call that justification. That is credited to your account. And J.R. Packer says in his classic essay, what did the cross achieve? He puts it this way and he quotes a hymn for emphasis. So our conscience is pacified by the knowledge that our sins have already been judged and punished. However strange the statement may sound in the person and death of another. Bunyan's pilgrim before the cross loses his burden and uh, mentions the, the hymnist, can assure himself that if thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my room endured, the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first from my bleeding surety's hand and then again from mine. In other words, the sacrifice is once and for all. The justification therein also once and for all. So finally, let's apply this. Uh, I want to make one application here. Uh, I think that this is a seminal text on prayer. Now, prayer is not mentioned explicitly here. I think it's very, very strongly implied. Um, And so I think that this means that you can approach the throne of grace with confidence, uh, not just in that day uh, that you come before the Lord, but also every day in prayer. I think that is incredible, by the way, that uh, at the throne of a perfect and infinite and, and just God who would consume you in your sin, that you can come boldly into the throne room. You may even come stumbling into the throne room. You may even come into the throne room like a little child, right? Weak, uh, crying, but still you can ask with full confidence for whatever you need. The Shorter Catechism says this very beautifully. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. In other words, our our prayers come to God through the filter of Jesus. Uh, This this great high priest, he's like a a spiritual water treatment plant, okay? He's he's purifying all of the elements of our tainted prayers so that they're acceptable to God and so that you can ask. So that you can ask for help in that relationship that you just cannot seem to get right so that you can ask for help in in the sin struggle that you just cannot seem to get the upper hand in. You can ask for help uh, to merely get out of bed 
and face another day if that's the help you need. You can ask for any of it. You can ask for all of it with confidence that you may receive mercy, the text says, and find grace to help in your time of need. And so that you can know in that moment that the one who intercedes for you so effectively that he fully sympathizes with you and that he really purifies both you and your prayers. And then ultimately, if that, that rooted gospel justification level so that you can know that though you were in the courtroom, fairly accused, destined for punishment, that the perfect representative interceded for you. You don't even need the one phone call, right? Uh, it, it's been replaced with a lifetime that we can enjoy here and now of confident, direct access to the throne of God in prayer. Why? Because God demanded payment only once. And Jesus has made that payment once and for all. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that in Jesus, you have made the payment for our sin, that what we could uh, never pay ourselves has been paid by you that your justice is satisfied in him. We pray that we would uh, live like that is true. And we pray that uh, we would pray like that is true. We pray that uh, we would know and do all of that in and for you and your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.